0: You're listening to WORT Local News, the special year in review edition. I'm your host, Nate Wegehout. Tonight, we're looking at the changing landscape of unhoused encampments and support services in the city. When the pandemic began in the spring of 2020, homeless shelters across the city were forced to reduce the number of people who were allowed inside. At the same time, skyrocketing unemployment forced an increase in homelessness. As a result, the city temporarily allowed Temporarily Permissible Encampments, or TPEs, in several of the city's parks at the start of the pandemic. In spring 2020, an emergency order temporarily lifted a citywide prohibition on overnight camping in city parks. Several encampments bloomed across several parks. McPike Park on the near east side reached a height of several hundred campers in fall 2020. That park was never permitted by the city as an encampment, but it was closer to downtown and city services than others. In February of this year, McPike Park was shut down by the city with two main encampments remaining, Starkweather Park and Rheindahl Park. Unhouse Advocates said that the Starkweather encampment was essentially a swamp filled with ticks and mosquitoes. Most campers chose to stay at Rheindahl. Over the months, the City of Madison and Unhouse Advocates have grappled with adequate solutions and support services in order for the Rheindahl encampment to shut down. In April and May of this year, one year after the encampments were first allowed, the city of Madison announced that they would no longer permit the encampments at Marindal Park. This announcement drew backlash from community members who argued that the safest place for unhoused people was in the encampment at Rindal. Jonah Chester had the story from May 4th.
1: Last May, the city of Madison permitted temporary homeless camps in parks across the city, pausing a policy forbidding overnight camping in city parks. This Sunday, city leaders are set to foreclose on one of those encampments at Rheindahl Park, located near the Dane County Airport. Community activists say that forcibly relocating residents of Rheindahl Park would sever them from neighborhood resources, trigger mental health issues, and destroy the community that's formed among park residents. James DeGray is a resident of Rheindahl Park. Speaking at a city-county meeting last night, he outlined why residents preferred the park as opposed to the city's other shelter options.
2: I believe that socially or
3: physically distancing, rather, outside is the best way to stop any spread of contagion or any secondary virus. But I've been in some community meetings here at Rindahl amongst the people that have been staying here, and I was told that I could speak on behalf of everyone, and we don't feel that it's right. That we have to leave during the pandemic and rely on other people's uh, safety. It would be much wiser to come to an actual functional system for using parks to house people in emergency rather than kick us out and get rid of the cheapest alternative for people to be.
1: Many activists who spoke last night also pointed to guidance from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which say that disrupting encampments can increase the potential for disease spread. Speaking at yesterday's meeting, Evelyn Gildry voyles a volunteer who works with residents of Rhindahl Park, said that the camp has self-imposed public health policies.
4: The people residing at Rindale take distancing very seriously and have created their own means of handwashing and sanitation since the city was slow to provide wash stations and trash collections. There is currently a network of volunteers and service providers that are serving the population at Rheindahl, including the residents there themselves.
1: In February, the city cleared out a similar camp at McPike Park on the Near East Side. Jim O'Keefe, Madison's community development director, told WORT Today that that situation was slightly different to the one at
2: Rheindahl Park. The McPike Park, which was a much larger um, gathering at its height was never a, a sanctioned encampment site, not a, what, what we referred to as a temporary permissible encampment. Um, it had nev- never gained that status. Uh, the Rheindal Park location had. O'Keefe says
1: that the number of residents at Rheindal fluctuates, but at last count it was around 15 to 20 people. O'Keefe says that since last year, the city has taken a number of steps to increase sanitation and public health requirements
2: at the city's shelters. Great precautions have been taken, taken at the shelter settings to avoid the spread of, of COVID. There, There is daily screening for um, COVID symptoms at intake. The evidence suggests the experience has been at the shelters that they are every bit as safe, if not more so than the encampment settings.
1: Last December, a 30-year-old man with no permanent address was found dead in the park. Another man was found dead in the park last September. Meanwhile, the city council is resuming a vote on whether to place a permanent men's homeless shelter on Madison's Far East Side. Residents and business owners near the proposed location on Zaire Road say the permanent homeless shelter should be located downtown, such as the current but temporary men's homeless shelter at the old Fleet Services Building on East Washington Avenue. Alders will take up the proposal once again at their virtual meeting this evening. That begins in just a few minutes at 6.30. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester. Meanwhile, the city council approved a
0: new tiny home village on Madison's north side. The village, created by the group Occupy Madison, sat on Aberg Avenue on the site of the old Wiggy's Bar. It would house more than two dozen formerly unhoused people in tiny Conestoga huts. It's not the first tiny home village. In 2014, Occupy Madison opened a similar village on the east side. Sam Kodzik had the story. The project is the work of
5: community organization Occupy Madison, a non-profit focused on providing homes for Madison's houseless population. The group built its first set of tiny homes and opened its first village on the east side in 2014. Last night, the council unanimously approved Occupy Madison's second tiny house village on Madison's north side, on a piece of property on Aberg Avenue, formerly home to Wiggy's Bar. Occupy Madison purchased the land last fall and obtained permission from the council to build temporary structures to help some unhoused people get through a harsh winter. Last night, the council approved a more permanent rezoning for more permanent tiny houses. And that permanent rezoning means that Occupy Madison is no longer under threat of losing permission to have their housing community. Brenda Conkle is a former alder and co-president of Occupy Madison. She says she's hopeful for what more permanent construction will bring to this and future tiny house developments.
4: This new um,
6: zoning is really exciting for us. This really allows us to move forward with all of our plans and to really make this a permanent home for a lot of the people that live there. So uh, people are really excited. Um, it feels like, you know, sort of a weight has been lifted off of our shoulders because um, we know that, you know, the zoning can't be taken away at this point.
5: The temporary huts that occupied the property last winter will move to a new location as 22 more permanent tiny homes begin construction. Landscaping and other necessary work to prepare the site is set to begin this summer. Kim Fruin is a resident of the current tiny home village on Aberg Avenue. She says that having a place in the village has helped her improve herself and her circumstances.
7: Occupy Madison gave me an opportunity to be able to help other people like myself in in need. And it was something that was a confidence builder for me that gave me a sense of purpose, community, um, and uh, a sense of drive to um, want to um, be better
5: and do better. Saiyad Abbas, the alder for District Three, containing the rezoned property, says that widespread community support for this project shows potential for similar projects in the future.
8: Well,
2: I was very actually pleased with this project. The community at large was really in support. They welcomed the neighbors. They welcomed the project. I can see that happening in other part of the district too. But also, I think so. I really want to see tiny home in other part of the city. It should be in every district. It should be everywhere wherever we can accommodate and
5: fit. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Sam Kotzik.
0: Just as the tiny home village was announced, people living at Rheindahl and Starkweather Park were cautious. In May, former producer Jonah Chester went to Starkweather Park to talk to the people living there to ask them what they thought about the options and the future ahead of them.
1: The camp at Rheindahl sits off to the side of the park. It's composed of about a dozen tents and it's hunkered down near a patch of trees. Earlier this afternoon, only a couple of people were out and about. Some were away for the day while others were asleep in their tents. According to city estimates, there are about 10 residents of the camp, although that number rises and falls as people come and go. Benjamin Farwell has been at Rheindahl for two months. He says that he was forced out of the city's other shelter on First Street after a medical incident. If he's booted from Rheindahl, he says he's not sure where he'll go.
3: The fact that they are trying to get rid of people that are just trying to live their lives is wrong
0: well I have health issues and I was kicked out of the actual uh, shelter uptown um, because I had a seizure and they thought I did something else but I just had a seizure
3: and Kicking us out of here would disrupt our lives because we would not have a place to live, a place to stay, a place to breathe.
1: The Madison City Council is still deciding what to do about temporary encampments with flexibility hindered by existing ordinances and state regulations. During a nearly 10-hour meeting that stretched from last night into this morning, the council postponed any decision on whether to evict the residents at Rheindahl Park, referring the issue to multiple subcommittees. That proposal would have allowed the Rheindahl camp to continue until an appropriate alternate site could be located. It also would have established new standards for future encampments. So the Rheindahl camp will be permitted to stay, for now. A knot of issues from the legal viability of the camp to a debate over potential alternate sites means that the site has entered an uneasy limbo. The city has floated the option of potentially relocating Rheindahl residents to Starkweather Park. Located about 10 minutes away by car, Starkweather is the only other permitted camp for unhoused individuals. But Rheindahl residents, some city leaders and other advocates for unhoused individuals say Starkweather is essentially a swamp, leaving people staying there prone to ticks and mosquitoes. All of the Starkweather residents who spoke with WORT today reinforced that claim. The tents at Starkweather are set on high ground to avoid potential flooding, and a significant part of the landscape is low-lying fields. Julie Bandit has been at Starkweather since February. She says that if campers can't secure a high-ground camping spot, the conditions can become difficult in wet weather.
9: People there
10: at Randall, if they're happy, let them stay there. I mean, if they... You know, but you know, it's, it's pretty harsh over there in the swamp and underneath thirty. That's pretty rough, you know. Alligators, snappers, and things. There's also
1: a debate over access. Some city leaders say that emergency vehicles won't be able to easily access campers at stark weather. The city parks website even refers to the park as quote mostly not accessible. And during the park seems to baffle Google Maps. One recommended entrance was to stop on the side of Highway 30 and somehow get to the path below. I blew by the Milwaukee Street entrance three times before approaching on foot, eventually stumbling on a small dirt road shielded by a clutch of trees and foliage. There's no sidewalk leading directly to the Milwaukee Street entrance. To access it, you either have to hike through a field or cross a busy street. On one side of the dirt road, which is close to everything but foot traffic, is a sprawling Amazon hub. On the other side is farmland, with signs warning that trespassers will be fined. As you make your way down the gravel path, tents spring out of a strip of trees off the right. Eventually, the dirt road turns to a hiking path and the sound of traffic from Milwaukee Street fades to a distant hum. Tyrone and April Martin recently moved into the point where the hiking path meets the dirt road. They said that they opted for stark weather because of Rheindahl's current questionable status and because of a lack of shelter options for married couples.
7: If we're, if you're married, they should have a couples where they can go for couples. We don't have kids except for the dog as our child, but and that's the only thing. And that's the only thing that they want to give is the female shelter for females and families. But if you don't have any little kids, then you don't have too many options. Why? Why split up a couple that have been a couple for years and happy to just to get services?
1: The Martins both say that the major flaw in the city's strategy for unhoused residents is a lack of affordable housing.
7: You have to have credit check. You have to have income. We have income, but it's not a, not enough.
10: He just recently applied for a place to live. My son-in-law, my father, my son, my stepson was approved. My father-in-law was approved, but we were denied because she doesn't have any rental history, and I have a vision on my record that is over 15 years old. So that doesn't make any sense. So you mean to tell me, because I have a vision that is that old, I can't get a place to live or whatever my circumstances is? So you mean to tell me that the rest of my life is going to be homeless? No.
1: They also agreed that the city is taking action to help unhoused residents, without actually asking those residents what would be best for
3: them. I'm born and raised here, but just just the way they go about this stuff these days. No, it's not right.
1: Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester.
0: As Madison continued to discuss what to do with the residents of Rhindall Park, Republicans and the state's Joint Finance Committee took the issue into their own hands. As the committee was discussing the budget in May, they rejected a proposal from Governor Tony Evers to allocate $73 million for projects to help address homelessness, instead adopting their own plan, which saw only $1.2 million over two years. Our reporter Martin Rocketsoli had the story
10: from May. Today, the Republican majority on Wisconsin's Bipartisan Budget Writing Committee rejected a proposal that would have allocated $73 million for projects to help address homelessness. They instead chose to implement their own plan, which would allocate $1.2 million over two years for a housing assistance program. Governor Evers' proposed plan for the $73 million would have gone to a number of programs, including affordable housing and rental assistance. Republicans on the committee objected to those programs, saying that they did not believe it was an efficient way to spend the money. Senator Dewey Strobel, a Republican from Sockville, said that he believed even if the money was given, there was no guarantee that it would be spent.
2: I believe they've gotten about $55 million in rental assistance in Dane County alone. And I believe that they have only deployed a small fraction of that money. I mean, we're talking Dane County alone, $55 million, and they haven't been able to get it out the door.
10: Dane County received $10 million for rental assistance from the CARES Act in 2020 and $16.2 million for rental assistance from federal COVID-19 relief funding. The news comes as Madison is struggling to decide what to do with temporary permitted encampments for unhoused residents at Rheindal and Starkweather parks. Joe Volk is the executive director for the Wisconsin Coalition Against Homelessness. He says federal funds could have been used to help unhoused individuals, but that instead Republicans held up the funding. People are hurting. People are Uh, are unemployed, without jobs, uh, facing losing uh, their
2: homes, and it is unconscionable and mean-spirited that the Republican-led Joint Finance Committee has not released these funds. It's long overdue. Um, They should act immediately and make these funds available.
10: Ultimately, the committee voted to increase funding for housing assistance by just $1.2 million over the next two years. The vote was a predictable partisan split, with Republican lawmakers voting for more modest increases and Democratic lawmakers voting against. GOP lawmakers also highlighted changes to a small grants program administered by the state, which gives $75,000 to one municipality a year to help homeless people find and retain jobs. Under the current program, those municipalities must provide at least $50,000 in matching funds. Senator Markline says that they're changing the program so that more municipalities can participate.
1: What better uh, act can we do than to help somebody who's homeless get a
3: job? And uh... What we're doing uh, in this uh, portion of of this motion is uh, currently the the match, as Fiscal Bureau said, is $50,000. We
10: are reducing that to $10,000 to make it uh, more affordable. So hopefully municipalities uh, will be encouraged to participate. Ultimately, the changes also passed on a party line vote. The Joint Finance Committee voted on a number of other provisions, including increased funding for Wisconsin's Department of Tourism. Wisconsin Republicans chose to reject a proposal from Governor Evers that would have spent up to $100,000 on body-worn cameras for state capital Police officers. The Legislative Budget Committee had also been expected to take up broadband expansion today, but committee leaders announced this morning that action on the topic will likely be delayed for several weeks. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Martin Rocassoli.
0: You're listening to WORT Local News. Thank you for listening to our special year in review. I'm your host, Nate wuggie Health. celebrate the holidays, our volunteers are taking a week off to rest and spend time with their families while we look at some of the stories from this year that affected our city. We'll take a short break, and in the second half of the show, we continue looking at the winding path of Rheindahl Park.
4: As 2021 wraps up, we want you to know how grateful we are for your generous support. Our volunteer hosts and engineers are back in the building. And while we are not back to normal, whatever that is, we are back to live news, talk, and music, and handmade radio with all of its wonderful spontaneity. We know we face more challenges in 2022, including replacing major equipment and continuing to deal with the vagaries of the pandemic. But your support keeps us optimistic We hope that in 2022 you find time to rest and recharge. Hang out with those you love, do the things that bring you joy, dance to your favorite music, be as kind and generous and forgiving with yourself as you are with the people around you. Thank you for your continued support and our very best wishes to you for 2022 from your WORT family.
3: Hello again friends, Stu Levitan here to let you know about a special edition of Madison in the 60s this Wednesday night from 6 to 7. We'll learn about race and classrooms and the black Study strike. I'll announce the female newsmaker of the decade and profile some of the other women making history. And we'll get close and personal with two lords of the ring, Muhammad Ali and Charlie Moore. That's the Madison in the 60s special edition this Wednesday night from 6 to 7 on WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. Listener-supported community radio.
4: Support for this program is provided by Madison Essentials, Southern Wisconsin's magazine 100% dedicated to covering local businesses, nonprofits, and people making a difference in our local communities. Now publishing six issues per year providing fresh, local, compelling content every other month at over 200 convenient pickup spots or online at MadisonEssentials.com.
0: You are listening to WORT Local News, our special year-in-review edition. Tonight's topic, A Turbulent Year of Unhoused Issues in Madison. I'm your host, Nate Wiggy-Hout. We left off in May of this year as city leaders again looked at possibly ending an emergency order allowing overnight camping in city parks. In June, alders of the Madison Council again proposed ending permissible encampments, a proposal that would evict unhoused residents at Rhindall Park. Gary Halverson, a Madison elder from the city's east side, said he was concerned about violence and harassment in the park and wanted to make the park safe. But when the council met a few days later, they voted to send the proposal to city committee. After they had received hundreds of pages of public comments both for and against shutting down the encampment. Our reporter Jade Isiri Ramos had the story from July.
11: At the height of the COVID 19 pandemic, the Common Council decided that people experiencing homelessness could camp in Madison's parks without punishment. This was at a time when many shelters in the area had reduced capacity to prevent the spread of COVID. Most parks have since reverted to pre pandemic policies. And in May, residents of Rheindell Park were told to relocate. However, it is still a home base for an estimated several dozen campers who have largely been left alone by the city. Last night, the council heard a proposal introduced by District 17 Alder Gary Halverson. It would require city staff to enforce ordinance that prohibit camping. In other words, it would immediately evict anyone living in Rheindell Park. Under the proposal, the city would set up toilet and hand-washing facilities on separate city-owned land far out on the northeast side, near the Dutch Mill Park and Ride. It's near an industrial park seven miles away from Rheindahl. It's about a two-hour trip by foot. Those facilities would be available until the end of October. At last night's meeting, Halverson asked to suspend the rules and allow the proposal to be introduced and voted on in the same council meeting. The council ultimately voted against suspension of the rules 13 to 6. But the Rindall encampment isn't off the chopping block quite yet. The council didn't accept public comment on the proposal, however, the council did receive 100 pages of public comment, both against and in support of the proposal. Those in support largely reported feeling unsafe, while those against called it an attack on the houseless population. Last Friday, police responded to an incident involving 10 people at Rheindal Park, reports the Madison Police Department. Megan Spielbauer-Sandate registered to speak on a separate issue, but commented that the attempt to introduce and pass the proposal was shameful. It is stress on our houseless folk to know that suddenly that an agenda item can appear that if y'all hadn't voted against it and there hadn't been time to get people out to the meeting, which I know that a lot of you recognize, but I think it does need to be voiced out loud that that is something that isn't fair. It isn't right. The proposal was referred to the City-County Homeless Issues Committee and the Equal Opportunities Commission. Reporting for WORT News, I'm J.D. Siri Ramos.
0: After discussing the issue for about a month, the Common Council had made their decision in August. The Rhindall Park encampment would stay, at least for the moment. While the encampment started small, by this time, Rindahl had become home to over 50 unhoused residents, and the city decided they would need to find new solution before evictions could begin. Haley Griffin had the story in August.
9: The camp at Rhindall Park remains in place as city officials weigh potential alternate campsites for unhoused residents. Madison Community Development Director Jim O'Keefe says that city staff are currently looking to establish a site that complies with state campground regulations. That means that the city would have to meet requirements for delivery of drinkable water, as well as connection to public sanitary sewer systems. O'Keefe addressed Madison Equal Opportunities Commission last Thursday.
2: I think that there is broad consensus um, among city staff, um, among um, campers at Rindle Park um, among service agencies that are that are supporting them I believe among um, members of the common council and and um, likely among many um, residences residents in the, in the nearby area general consensus that the current situation at Rindle Park is is not sustainable um, and it's it's something that we need to to do much better um in, in responding to.
9: O'Keefe says that the alternative locations will either consist of property that is already owned by the city or private property that needs to be purchased. This latter option could take a while as O'Keefe notes that there is a very structured and defined process that the city must follow to obtain property. In the spring the number of residents in Rhindel Park was less than a dozen. As of now that number has grown to about 40 to 60 people according to city estimates. To reduce concerns that are currently being voiced about the volume of people staying in Rindle Park, O'Keefe says that they want to limit the amount of people allowed at alternative sites to 30, which would allow for staffing and oversight on behalf of the city. Though the city's finance committee approved proceeding with plans for these alternatives, nothing will come of those plans without further approval by the city, as land use issues prevent any of the proposed resolutions.
2: None of this will happen without further council approval. Um, so there are um, resolu- resolutions that have been introduced to the council that will address some of the land use issues that that are currently an impediment to the kind of arrangement we're talking about.
9: Right now, there are no immediate solutions for the residents at Rindle Park. O'Keeffe hopes encampment solutions in relation to land use ordinances will be addressed at the next city council meeting on August 31st. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Haley Griffin.
0: Months went by with Rheindahl Park continuing to serve as home for up to about 70 campers. But as winter approached, steps needed to be taken to ensure the safety of Rheindahl residents. Which brings us to this month. By December, the tiny home village on Derry Drive was open and ready for residents which housed 27 people earlier this month. In addition to the village at Derry Drive, the city also housed some people at the Madison Plaza Hotel across the street from Rheindahl. With these options in place, the city began to evict residents from Rheindahl Park in early December. I went to Rheindahl Park on December 6th, when residents were supposed to officially leave the park.
10: So nobody seems to know what is going on. And we're not getting answers.
0: It was a cold day today at Ringdell Park, where up until recently over 70 people had been living in tents. Today, there were only about a dozen tents left. The city of Madison has declared that camping will no longer be allowed at the park after today. The city had originally tried to evict residents of the park back in May of this year, when Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway called for the temporary encampment to be closed. But still, residents remained. And beginning tomorrow, the city will begin enforcing an ordinance that prohibits overnight camping. Residents of the park have been told that they could not camp in the park after the 6th, and that belongings had to be moved out by the 9th. But eviction notices posted around Rheindahl Park in November state that the structures, tents, and personal property must be removed from Rheindahl by the end of the day today. Residents at the park say that they have received conflicting information about exactly when they need to leave. One resident of the park, who went only by Garrett, explains the confusion.
3: They had rope 6th or 7th. Uh, they changed it up once at 6th, and then they had it on 7th. Nobody has a room, uh, for sure, definite.
0: Residents of the park also claim that city officials were at the park on Friday throwing away the belongings of residents of the park, further adding to the confusion of when they are supposed to leave. Video from Facebook shows city employees throwing away objects deemed abandoned into a garbage truck.
1: throwing away all, all, a lot of stuff, a lot of what were belongings of people that they've had for years. You know,
3: and they landed here homeless, and a lot of them are new here. And a lot of those things that that left are, are fresh too. They're they're new to them that they just received, maybe, maybe the past loved one or something like that. Yeah. But they're gone now. You know.
0: One of the city's biggest reasons for moving people out of the park is safety concerns. Pearl Foster, who is with Community Action Against Rheindoll Eviction, says that the safety issues at the park were created by the city due to the lack of resources at the park.
4: It was supposed to be a TPE, and under the TPE, Temporary Permissible Encampments, there were supposed to be certain rules to follow, such as running water and bathrooms. And when a lot of people moved here in February, when the eviction went up at McPike Park, those things weren't available. And advocates and volunteers like me begged the city for months to get more porta-potties, running water, garbage cans, um, and other things because um, the city didn't um, provide those. They didn't follow their own guidelines. Um, Lighting is still not good in this park. And so um, the city neglected the, the people and then blame the people for the neglect. The
0: city has given residents of the park several options on where to move to. One of them is the new community of tiny shelters on Derry Drive, which began moving in residents last month. The city is also housing some at the Madison Plaza Hotel, which sits across the street from Rindall Park, where contractors also provide support services for long term housing. Some residents say that they would rather stay in the park, however. Garrett explains.
3: they I myself, I'm a vet for six years, and I have a hard time staying indoors a lot. So I go outdoors a lot. and I do that, i stay up for weeks and then come back. So I was bad with apartments. You know? City of
0: Madison employees and Madison Parks Department employees did not return requests for comment by broadcast. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Weggie-Hout. The next day, I spoke with Lisa Lashinger, assistant superintendent of the city of Madison Parks, about the residents of Rheindahl and what options lay ahead of them and what happens next. Yesterday was the last day that Madison would allow tent camping at Rheindahl Park where at one time over 70 people had been living. The city had tried to evict residents of the park back in May, but many residents remained. Residents I spoke with yesterday were confused about the exact timeline about when they and their belongings needed to be out of the park. Today I'm talking with Lisa Lassinger, Assistant Superintendent of the City of Madison Parks. Lisa, thank you for talking with me today.
6: Yes, you're welcome.
0: So first I want to ask you about Rheindahl today. Were you down there today?
6: Yes, I was. I was out there this morning.
0: What did it look like out there this morning?
6: Um, well, there are still a large number of tents uh, present in the park, and uh, I know that there were maybe a handful of, of individuals who are still camping in the park, um, and there were also a number of uh, advocates in the park as well.
0: So of the people that are still camping in the park, what is the plan of what is going to happen to them?
6: Uh, We're taking an individualized approach, and city staff from Community Development Division as well as outreach partners are working with all individuals known to be staying in the park and trying to work with them individually to meet their needs and help them understand what alternatives there may be for them.
0: Have you, when you were down there today, were you able to talk with anyone who was still camping at the park and have they explained why they are hesitant to go to any of these locations?
6: No, I did not personally talk to people who were hesitant. Um I know there were some people at the park that are actually at the Dairy Drive location and at the hotel option and they were I know they've they've spoken highly of that, but I'll, in my role with parks, I haven't had a lot of individual contact with the people who are camping in the park and trying to help them find solutions. That's something that our community development division staff handles, as well as um, in working with our outreach partners.
0: So residents at the park have said that they were confused about when exactly they needed to leave, with some believing it was yesterday, and some believing that it was today. What has the city's communication been like with the people living at the park?
6: So, our message through outreach partners throughout the fall was that the, the encampment was going to be ending soon. Um, in November, we posted, the Parks Division posted signs in the park, notifications that the encampment would be closing as of December 6th. So, starting on December 7th, camping in the parks is no longer, in, in parks and especially Rindle Park is no longer allowed. Um, and so we've begun our typical process for ending camping and that's notifying the individuals um, that their belongings need to be removed. So in this situation, today uh, we did post any remaining property that it needs to be out of the park by Thursday. But um, as as it is, camping is no longer allowed at, at Rindell Park.
0: So if I am correct, you... the Parks Department had tried to clear people out of the park back in May. What is different between May's attempt at clearing the park to today?
6: We have far more options, sheltered options, for people to go to than we did in May. In May, when we went to end the temporary permissible encampment at Rindell, um options were other outdoor encampments, um, stark weather being the primary one. And since then, the city has invested considerable resources into other shelter options. Um, and if you would like a little more information on that, we can certainly provide that to you. But the, the, the Dairy Drive location and the, the hotel option are significant improvements from where we were in May. And we also have the, the shelter options, the First Street Garage, and the the Salvation Army for Women. So, not I'm sorry, not the First Street garage, but the First Street, it's the former fleet facility, so the the men's shelter at um, First Street.
7: So
0: last Friday, city employees went over to the park to dispose of uh, abandoned property, with some items being taken by the city for the people to pick up within 45 days and some things being disposed of on site. Some of the things that were disposed of on site uh, include items with replacement value below $50, perishable items, items that pose a public health risk or dangerous and items with no sentimental legal or medical value. Now, a lot of those make sense to me, but what is the, or what was the reasoning used to determine what was and was not sentimental items? Uh, Well,
6: we, we, and our staff, our staff and our, Contractors who have and are familiar with the policy have to use discretion in what may have sentimental value, but some examples are defined in the ordinance. That may be a family photos or a photo from a, draw, uh, a drawing from a child or something along those lines, um, but it, it's really, at that point, it's up to discretion of the people doing the cleanup if it is deemed to have sentimental value.
0: So now as we sort of start to wrap up a little bit here, I want to shift and ask why is it important for people to not be living at the park there?
6: I think if anybody has followed the Rindle encampment situation throughout the course of the summer, you'd understand that it's it has become unsafe and unsanitary. Um, it's, and during the Wisconsin winters, living outdoors is certainly not what is certainly not the ideal solution for anyone. So it's it's important that it comes to an end and that people seek, seek safe shelter options.
0: Well, Lisa, thank you for talking with me here today. Are there any final thoughts that you would like to share?
6: No, I don't think so. I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you.
0: Yeah, of course. Uh, I've been speaking with Lisa Lassinger, who is the assistant superintendent over at the City of Madison Parks. Lisa, uh, thank you again so much for coming and talking with me today.
6: Yes, you're welcome. You have a nice day, Nate.
0: One issue surrounding the unhoused community in Madison was the feeling that the city was not listening to them. Earlier this month, a public affair host, Ali Muldrow, held a roundtable discussion on unhousing issues with several people working on the ground to provide support services for those in search of housing. The conversation had several guests, including Dominic Christian, a housing program manager at the Road Home Dane County, and community peer health advocate Aisha Murphy from the Madison Area Care for the homeless One Health. Plus, Christy Goldade, Hotels to Housing Program Director at Focus Counseling, and Michael Moody, co-founder and CEO of Catalyst for Change. Here's part of that conversation from two weeks ago on WORT's A Public Affair.
8: Recently, our our city council voted not to create a a men's homeless shelter. Christy, can you talk about some of the politics of supporting the, the homeless community? What does it mean to try to fight for resources for a community that is seen as destructive, seen as problematic, seen as needy and desperate? How do, how do you get, get folks to create space and have the best interests of this community at heart?
4: Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's another sort of multifaceted process, but I think it begins with educating folks in our community to understand that folks experiencing homelessness are our community, that people without homes, people doubling up, that's all of us, it impacts all of us equally. And to have a stake in it, I think that's one of the first steps. Um, and then I think another one of the steps is another level of education just around what's possible when folks are staying. I mean, Focus runs the Vulnerable Persons Hotel Project. So that's a 24-7 shelter. And what we've been able to do there is connect people with long-term case management, um, with doctors, with healthcare services, with you know, getting into an assisted living if they're an older person and need more care. Um, and so I think that maybe A part of it, too, is just constituent citizens and perhaps even our representatives not understanding just what's possible when you have somebody right there in front of you. You can build that relationship, um, like Mike was pointing at, and you can build that trust and get people to help them to apply to housing and continue to get stabilized. But I think that folks maybe aren't sure what happens inside of a shelter. Um, I know that. We don't often get many visitors to the BPH or the MRC. Um, And so a part of that, I think, is just, again, that invisibility, not seeing folks, not seeing the workers who are serving people and knowing what actually what transformative work happens in those spaces. Um, And so if you don't know that it's happening, you don't value it. Right. And I think that's the biggest layer. It's just people feeling really disconnected, like it's not my problem, when in, in fact, it very much is.
8: Michael, when you talk about the things that drive homelessness, I think we talked about some of kind of some of the negative associations there are with with homeless communities or people experiencing homelessness. But one of the things that drives people into homelessness is eviction. Another thing that drives people into homelessness is escaping domestic violence. When you think about, you know, factors like domestic violence and factors like eviction, what can you do for folks who are experiencing eviction or experiencing d- domestic violence? What can you do to make sure that those things? things don't result in homelessness? How can we be proactive in if somebody decides to leave an abusive relationship or if somebody ends up being evicted, how do we make sure that those folks have a place to land and rebuild? And what is the work you all are doing at Catalyst for Change to address some of those driving factors?
3: Um, I think I'm going to kind of split that into two parts and, and go back to some of the comments and uh, observations that were made. I think You know, there's uh, some of that kind of political will and community education. And I think we need to really start looking upstream to solutions. You know, I think it's, how do we support families? How do we, uh, you know, make sure that the men's shelter is built? How do we get supportive systems in place before folks become homeless? And then to have uh, easier access to services. You know, I think Aisha talked about you know, the struggles she had for the doubling up. And that's one factor. I think couples in this community often get overlooked uh, because we want to split them up to the women's shelter or the men's shelter, you know, car campers. So it, it's almost that we have people in the most dire of circumstances before we want to help. And I think we need to help, you know, anybody in need. And how do we help keep people stabilized? So I think, you know, as we're working with people to get them back on their feet, You know, we try to approach it as a person-driven agency. So we help the person and and it's through time. So to help that person get stabilized, not only in a alternative living situation, apartments, but to help them find income, whether it be a job or help them apply for social security, to get them connected to uh, case management and supportive services, whether it be substance use treatment or therapy, but really try to take it as a whole person to get them restabilized and, and reintegrate them into our community. But I think Michael, as can
8: I ask you a follow-up? addressing
3: these problems? Oh yeah, of course.
8: So you you named one of the, the real pronounced solutions could be, and one of the problems is that we divide people who are experiencing homelessness based on gender. Um, but then you did speak to kind of one of the solutions would be to create a men's shelter. Are we making any progress as a community in terms of establishing a location for that shelter and creating a timeline for when we can start providing those services and providing uh, that space to men in our community who are experiencing homelessness?
10: So
3: I do think there is some, you know, we we have the temporary shelter now. I, I believe that they have a, a secondary site that they're looking to build out. I'm a, a, a dreamer. Uh, I, I have wild and crazy and expensive ideas. But I think for me, if I had the ability to create a, a kind of a different system, I think having smaller, individualized shelters. You know, you talked about more help for youth. You know, help for single parents. Help for folks fleeing domestic abuse. I think. You know, having more individualized shelters with very specific skill sets and and targeting different populations, I think, would be a better approach than trying to fit everybody into one giant shelter. That, that causes a lot of stress. I think people have gone through systems and had a lot of negative impact. You know, from criminal justice system to eviction court. You know, and putting them in those large situations where everybody's expected to get along, I feel like is is a very challenging thing. And then Having just one shelter. You know, if, if someone gets kicked out of the shelter, where are they to go? I I was just working with someone last night who had some behavioral issues and, and isn't allowed to go back to the shelter because of a multitude of incidences, which I understand those rules, but it also leaves him out on the streets without any support. So I think we have to be more creative than you know, in our solutions and in our approach to help.
8: Dominic, I wanted to kind of return to talking to you about a little bit of what it looks like to support folks. And, you know, when you talk about the the fetishization of homelessness, right, like this one image we have of this guy, you know, sleeping on a pile of newspaper downtown versus the reality of homelessness. It's interesting because I think a lot of times our solutions cater to that fetishized version of homelessness. Homelessness. Um, so I think of things like tiny houses, and I really appreciate, Michael, you talking about needing more individual, more private, you know, solutions for individuals experiencing homelessness. How do you move away from some of the kind of more charity driven solutions we've seen to things that really meet people's needs and really allow for folks to access dignity?
7: I think that we have to go away from coming up with solutions without involving the people that need Eat the solution, and I think that that is important because each person that we meet, whether they are sleeping in their cars on the streets in places not meant for human habitat, or doubled up in, like you said, on an aunt's basement floor, or sometimes in a stranger's home, we all have a different story. Aisha has her story, right? I also, I too, have an experience with um, homelessness within the Dane County system, both as a child and as an as an adult. And a parent. And we all have our own story. We all have our own background that we came from. And I think that it is important for solutions to recognize the individuality and where we all come from. We don't come from the same space. We don't have the same background. My employment history history may look vastly different than Aisha's. So what is the support? How does the support look different for me than the next person? And to Michael's point, yes, creativity around how we support individuals or families in experiencing homelessness is going to be key, um, because the more creative we get, the more willing people are going to feel with coming to us and saying, I am homeless. This is a thing for my family or for me as an individual, because you can offer all the services you want. But if the service that is being rendered is not welcoming, I am not going to seek support, whether you have an agency that I can sleep in, every night and might have to call in at four o'clock in the morning if I don't feel welcome in that space, or if, if, if I'm married and my spouse is not welcome into that space, of course, I'm not going to access that service because while I am, while it is believed that I can sleep at night, because now I have a shelter, a temporary place to call home, where is my spouse? And so some people, we need our, we operate as a unit. We don't operate as as a single when we are in a in a coupled relationship Um, and in coupled relationships, you need that second parent to provide the support for the children if children are involved and more than likely are likely than not children are, in fact, involved. And so I think the solution is being able to go out and have conversation with the people that are experiencing homelessness and say, hey, how can our system support the needs of your family? What does that look like for you? and not judging what they identify as the solution to their individualized problem. I think a lot of bias plays a part in who receives services and who doesn't receive services. And I think Michael mentioned something about something to the effect of who's worthy of receiving housing supportive services and who's not. Is the young black boy who is has a criminal background going to be as worthy of housing as Someone, a, a single mother, or or something to that effect. It is all based on it's so it's extremely subjective how services whose services are offered to in in Dane County and whose services are not offered to in Dane County, and that goes back to Aisha's point. Who at all the points that have been made thus far um during this broadcast, and it's a matter of we have to stop round tabling without the people who needs to sit at the table. It happens far too often, and when solutions are, when we come up with resolve for certain situations, it doesn't matter who speaks that resolve, try it. There's no harm in trying a thing. There's more harm in continuously having conversations about something that we all can literally see. Like you said earlier, Ali, we've never seen a a tent city. And I think that it's more of a worry of who's seeing it, right? So most of the, it's, it's right next to the interstate. So when people come in, of course, Grand Madison doesn't want for people to 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 see that we have a huge homeless population because we Madison has to look the part. Right. And so that's when it when it drew attention. So it created a problem. it's always been there.
8: And I think that in in Madison, we're good at sweeping things under the rug, right? And we're good at at pretending that we're kind of living in this leave it to beaver community where everybody is doing all right um, and everybody is equal and we all love each other and there's just rainbows splashed upon the whole community. And and I think it's really hard for us to deal with the idea and accept the reality that there's over a thousand kids at school right now today who don't know where they're going to go after school.
0: That was a portion of a conversation from two weeks ago when a public affair host, Ali Muldrow, spoke with a panel of people working on the ground to combat homelessness in our community. Those guests were Dominic Christian, Housing Program Manager at The Road Home, Dane County, Aisha Murphy, Community Peer Health Advocate at Madison Area Care for the Homeless One Health, Christy Goldade, Hotels 2 Housing Program Director at Focus Counseling, and Michael Moody co-founder and CEO of Catalyst for Change. You can listen to the full conversation online at our website, wortfm.org, or the A Public Affair podcast. The title of the episode is It's All Bad Out Here. Thanks for listening to tonight's year-in-review show on unhousing issues in Madison. Thanks to our reporters, Jonah Chester, Sam Kodzik, Martin Soli, Jade Iseri Ramos, Haley Griffin, and to contributors Dylan Brogan, Brenda Conkle, and Ali Muldrow. Your engineer tonight was Super Dave Lorenzen. I'm your host and producer, Nate Wagiho. Our week of theme specials continues Wednesday and Thursday. Tomorrow, Stu Levitan has a special report from Madison in the 60s. You can find this episode and all of our other newscasts on the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcast, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcast. Up next is Spanish language news with En Nuestro Patio. You're listening to Community Radio, WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. Have a good night.